theyeshiva.net. Mahajabin, where are you from? Where are you joining us from? Mahajabin Balach, where are you joining us from? Pakistan. Okay, I didn't mention that we have from Pakistan also. Aspirant convert. Wow, yeah, I got an email from you, I think, right? You remember there was, uh, I don't remember, it was a little, some time ago, one of the women's classes, somebody came up to ask a question, and she said she's listening in Beirut, in Lebanon. <laughs> so uh, it was amazing. She said there's a lot of people there that listen to the class, that listen to the classes. Right? It's pretty incredible. She actually comes from Jews. Her father is a Christian. Her mother comes from a Jewish family. So last year she came on. She spoke to everybody, told the women. Anyway, welcome. Uh, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing the name. I'm not so used to the name. But welcome to uh, Miss Balach. Balach, am I saying it right? Okay. <clears throat> from Pakistan. And uh, she writes, you inspire me big time, Rabbi, thank you. You're, you inspire me and you inspire all of us. <clears throat> if people from Pakistan are coming to learn chassidus, so certainly people from New York could come learn chassidus, yeah? <laughs> okay, you should continue to be a source of light and inspiration and God should give you the clarity and uh, be with you. In your journey towards in your journey of uh, emotional and spiritual growth, and it should be with a lot of blessings and success. And stay safe, please. I want would love to hear about life in Pakistan when you have a moment. You can email me, or one day you'll share with us. Okay, wow, welcome, thank you. I just also want to say that tonight is going to be a shloshim here in Munsi in the memory of Rabbi Dr. Moshe David Tendler, famous Rosh Hashiva and professor and scientist, biologist at YU, son-in-law of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, his brother-in-law, Rabbi Uven Feinstein, <laughs> Rabbi Moshe's son will give a eulogy as well as Rabbi Yonis and Zaks. And uh, I will also have the privilege of speaking there. It's in the, could be in the community synagogue in Muncie. And will also be Bezer Hashem streamed live here on the yeshiva.net. So you can join us virtually as well. The program begins at 8.30. They told me I'm going to speak around 9-ish, so probably be a few minutes later, but everybody's welcome, and we should always be able to hipser as toivis and celebrate simchas with each other, with our families and communities, but Yisro. So today we continue class number two in this series. We began learning a sicha, a talk, a shir, a presentation by the Lubavitcher Rebbe that was said, Parshas Chayesorah Tovshin Yud Aleph. That would be 1950, the 24th day of Cheshvan, 5 7 11, 1950, as I said. It's an important date because this is just a few months after his father in law passed away. The first year within the morning of the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe who passed away. Yud Shvat and Shvat of 50, 1950, and this is towards the end of 95, just a few months later, just a few weeks before the Lubavitch Rebbe would assume official leadership of Chabad, a few weeks later, Yud Shvat Tav Aleph, 1951, the beginning of 51, February 51. It's published in the Kuti Sichas, Volume 1, Parshas Chayesara, and let me uh, recap what we learned, and we'll move on. I just want to say it was very, very gratifying to see the feedback of the last class, Baruch Hashem. It meant a lot to see the amount of comments, um, really very, very interesting comments, including by psychotherapists and neuroscientists about the ramifications of what we learned in terms of healing and, and body work and appreciation of body work and sensitivity to the body work. Some very, very interesting comments, both last class and I see already on this class also. Because really, as I mentioned, this this information, especially at the time, even today, but especially at the time, was quite revolutionary. The way the Rebbe reveals the deeper layers of reality that actually, till literally a few decades ago, was not appreciated 
in the world of psychology and in the world of neuroscience and neuroplasticity and uh, trauma work and healing work. This is literally, these are ideas that have been developed and, and discovered in the last few decades by, by scholars, by researchers, by psychologists, by doctors, by scientists, by biologists, by neuroscientists over the last few decades. And that's what many people were pointing out in the comments. So this is yet from 1950. It, uh, it really opens us up to a layer that we often uh, don't, uh, are, are not cognizant of, are unaware of. So how is it structured? It's structured based on a Zoyar. The Zoyar teaches, and I quoted the Zoyar last time, it's Zoyar Parshish Chayisara, that Avram and Sarah are not only two people, of course they're two people, a husband and a wife, but Avram and Sarah also represent something. Like all characters in the Tanakh, they are timeless representations of certain realities, certain characteristics, which make their stories timelessly relevant, because it's not just a story of history, which is also very relevant, extremely relevant, but it's also a story of the self. It's a blueprint for your own life. In other words, the Torah is a manual that when you learn it, you could learn about your own soul, your own, soul, your own life. It's a map of the inner soul of a person. So particularly... Avraham represents, the Zohar says Avraham represents the neshama, the soul. And uh, Sarah represents the guf, the body. I translate every, I try to translate into English because as you see we have a diverse crowd. I want everybody to understand. So neshama means soul and guf means the body. Which basically comprised the human life, the soul and the body. Avraham, Abraham represents the soul and Sarah represents the body. So when it says that Sarah lived 127 years and then Sarah died in Kiryas Arba, he Hevron, Avram Avram came to uh, grieve for Sarah and to weep for Sarah. The Zoya says what this means is that the body is made up of the four components of fire, air, water, and earth, Kiryas Arba. He Hevron, Hevron means linked, connected. Because when she was alive, all of them were integrated into a cohesive whole as a functional living organism. And then she passes away and the elements become scattered. Every, every element returns to its natural origin, which is what happens after death and burial, where the body returns back to the earth and becomes part of the nutrients of the earth. And Avram Avinu, representing the soul, comes to grieve and to, to cry for Sarah, because the soul weeps after death because it's still connected to the body. So even though the soul continues to live, but the soul is always connected to the body. Especially in the beginning, there's even a deeper connection. And that's why the soul cries. Somebody sent me an interesting commentary of the Vilnagon. The Vilnagon writes, the word lifkaisa. Abraham came to cry for Sarah, is written with a little chaf. In a Sefer Torah, it's written with a tiny chaf. Live koisa, it's interesting, not with a regular chaf. And it's mysterious, why? Why does the Torah write it that way? And there's different interpretations. I think Rabshim Shirafal Hirsch writes, if I'm not mistaken, that the Torah is saying that what people saw in Avram's tears was only a very small part of his grief because his real inner pain at the loss of sorrow was so much deeper. It was not displayed. So the chaf is small. There was, there, was, there was crying and people saw it, but that was only a very little, small part of it. The deeper experience remained internal. There's an interpretation. This is a very interesting interpretation. Uh, I forgot who shared this with me, but uh, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Shneerson, had a mother. His name, her name was Rebbe Sterne Sora. She was the wife of the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitcher. She passed away in New York, Tovshin Beis, Yud Gimel Shvat Tovshin Beis, 1942, Shvat 1942. The Rebbe, her son was not in town then. He traveled to Chicago to visit the communities in Chicago. So he wasn't there when she passed away. She passed away on Shabbos, Yud Gimel Shvat. He came back later and he sat Shiva. The Rebbe was very broken after the passing of his mother. 
his father already passed away many years before 1920, and she was his mother. He was an only child. She accompanied him everywhere, including to from Russia to Poland, and then from Poland to escape from Nazi-occupied Warsaw to the United States. And the Rebbe was sitting shiva, was inconsolable. And they so somebody told me that there was a, a yid. He was, he was. Um, I forget his name. I knew his name. I forgot his name. And he came for shiva. And he turns to the Rebbe and he says, why is it that when Avram Avinu comes to weep for Sarah, there's a small chaf? Why? And he tells the Rebbe, I'll tell you why. Because if Sarah would have just passed away and that would be the end of it, Avram would be inconsolable. But when Avram looked and he saw that Sarah left a Yitzchak, she left a Yitzchak in the world, ah, it already made him feel much better. And he looked at the Rebbe and he says, because when a Sarah leaves a Yitzchak in the world, ah, there's something precious, priceless that remains. And of course he was intimating the fact that the Rebbe's mother, Sterna Sarah, left a Yitzchak because the Rebbe Dayatz's name was Yosef Yitzchak. They say that the Rebbe, you know, really, the Rebbe Dayatz really appreciated what he said. The Vilna Gaon says, the reason there's a small chaf is because he quotes the Zoya that we just learned, that the soul came to grieve for the body. And the body is Sarah, so Avram comes to grieve. But her soul's mission was, com- was complete. The quote is, let me, somebody put it in the, somebody put it in the footnotes, very nice. Just quote you what the Vilna Gaon says. There's a chumash with his explanations. So I think it's there also. Yeah. Avraham Avinu's the chaf is small because he wasn't crying for her soul. Her soul completed its tafkid, completed its purpose in the most wholesome and perfected way. So the soul completed its journey and now it was time for the soul to return to its natural organic space in the divine bosom. But he cried for the guf, for the guf of Sarah, for the body of Sarah, not for the neshama, for the guf. Sometimes you can cry also for the soul. The soul erred, the soul stumbled, the soul fell, the soul was eclipsed, the soul didn't fulfill its mission. Here the Guvilnagon says it was for the body. Interesting. According to this, we have the big question, and the question is, how does Hashem tell Avram Avinu, whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her? Doesn't make sense, apparently. Because we have a principle that on the contrary, the body should be subservient to the soul, not the soul should be subservient to the body. And we all, many of us, grew up on this idea and this ethic, and it's in many holy books, it's not just somebody's imagination, that the purpose in life is to make sure that your soul prevails over your body. The neshama is more powerful than the guf, and the good guf is a guf that listens to the body. But here Hashem is telling Avram Avinu something else. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. If Sarah is an allegory for the guf, what is the meaning of this? Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. That means that the soul is following the cues of the body, not the other way around. That's the question the Lubavitch Rebbe raises. In the second chapter, the second Sif, Sif Beis, he quoted the Baal Shem Tov. There's a fascinating, extraordinary teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. On the Pasuk, on the verse of Barshas of Shmatim, it says, if you see the donkey of your enemy crouching under its burden, and you might think you shouldn't help, because it's your donkey's enemy, why should you mix it? Says the Pasuk, Azav Tazav Ima, you have a mitzvah to go help and alleviate the pain and the suffering and the agony of the donkey and its owner. So the Baal Shem Tev, as always, interprets the Pasuk internally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually in a person's life. When you see the donkey, which donkey? Your own donkey. Every person has a donkey inside of them. Chamar is donkey in Hebrew, which, comes, which is the same letters like the word chamer. When you see your own materialism, your own physicality, your own body, and you're going to discover that he may be your enemy. Your own donkey is your enemy. 
Why? The Rebbe says, because in the beginning of life, and in the beginning of Avaidan, that's the key, in the beginning of life, and in the beginning of your service, beginning here doesn't only mean chronologically, it means in a, in, in, as one begins developing themselves, there's a process. And in that process, body and soul may be foes. They may be enemies of each other. And he's crouching under its burden. There's a burden of Torah and mitzvahs, even though it's the body's burden. It wasn't given to crush and destroy your donkey. It was given to refine the donkey, to help the donkey live the best life possible. It's a very interesting diuk that I don't think is in the original teaching of the Baal Shem Tev, because it, it also gives tremendous perspective. Why should I carry any burden? Isn't the body right? <laughs> Why should I carry burdens? But it's like when somebody's exercising and you give them a heavy weight, so it becomes a burden, but the purpose of the burden is to fine-tune the body, to hone its skills, to make you stronger, more powerful, to get the blood and adrenaline running. So not every bur- a burden doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. A burden sometimes is the best thing for me and for you. You know, a person who has no responsibility can often surrender to a, a sense of hope, of, of, of meaninglessness and laziness that could be the most destructive thing. So he says, it's crouching under its own burden, not under your burden, under its burden. It, meaning it's a burden for its own benefit. It's still crouching. It's not interested. I don't want it. I'm not interested in the burden of Torah and mitzvahs. You see such a donkey, what happens? We're going to see, the Baal Shem Tev says, you may not want to help. You want to ignore the donkey. And now the Sikhe goes off and starts explaining what this means. And he says, this is Siv Gimel, third chapter. The fact is that all the mitzvahs were given to souls the way they are in bodies. Angels don't have mitzvahs. Souls in paradise don't have mitzvahs. The mitzvahs were given to human beings who are comprised of a soul and a body. That's number one. Number two, the mitzvahs themselves assume physical properties. Most mitzvahs are mitzvahs that you do with your body, and the mitzvahs themselves are bodily. The mitzvahs themselves all have a spiritual theme and message, but they're manifested within physical realities. And this is not only true about the physical, practical mitzvahs, what we call mitzvahs maisius, action-oriented mitzvahs. As I said, to light a candle, we spoke last week, you need, you need, you need a physical wick and physical wax or physical oil. And the same is true to give tzedakah or to separate challah. If you're not going to have physical flour that comes from physical kernels, that come from physical grain, that come from physical seeds that are planted in physical earth, <laughs> there's no challah, and there's no truma, and there's no mice. The same is true with all the mitzvahs, mezuzah, But he says, even the mitzvahs that are duties of the heart, you have a mitzvah like love. Love your fellow Jew. Love God. You have a mitzvah of awe. You have mitzvahs that are connected to cognitive experiences. Duties of the brain. For example, the mitzvah of Hamanas Hayichut. Appreciating, understanding, believing the oneness of the created. It's also a mitzvah. The Rambam opens up his Mishnah Torah that the foundation of all foundations and the pillar of wisdom is that a person should realize and discover and know that there's a primary being and everything was created from that primary being. He says, even these mitzvahs, their theme and function is that they should be experienced and felt, as he puts it in Yiddish, in them kerplich, in them kerplich and flesh from hearts and mayach, in the material flesh of the heart and the brain. Every mitzvah, in other words, assumes a physical incarnation, even mitzvahs that are spiritual by nature, or emotional by nature, or internally ethical by nature. They're dealing with a higher stratum of reality. He says even those mitzvahs are not to remain abstract experiences. They are to find expression in the very physical body of the human being. The mitzvah of Avas Hashem, the mitzvah of loving God, is not a cerebral, platonic, intellectual love. He says the feeling of kirvas alakim litoiv, that the closeness to Hashem is good. He says, it, it, 
The mitzvah is it should be experienced in my bodily sensations. And the same is true in the mitzvah of awe. And then the Rebbe continues with three stories, three examples. And he gives an introduction, also a very fascinating introduction. What's the definition of a genuine Jewish leader? We call him a Nasi, a Rebbe, a Gadol. What, what's the definition? The definition is not only somebody who, who learns a lot or knows a lot, but somebody who becomes a living embodiment of the life, of the behavior, of the teachings of Yiddishkeit, of Torah. So they become ultimate role models. And he tells the story. Because the story helps us see examples of this in living people, people who lived and lived among us. And the first story he said was that the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya Rebbe Shnei Zalman of Liadi, once by davening as Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and he came to the words of V'chein tein pachtecha, V'chein tein pachtecha, Hashem alekeinu al kol masacha, ve'in moscho al kol mashabarasa, v'yirucha kol ha-maisim, v'yishtacha v'lefonecha kol ha-bruyim, the theme of these words is God confer your awe, your pachad, your awe, your, your fear on all of your creation. Meaning all of creation should have the awe and the reverence in the presence of the infinite flow of divine vitality that flows through them, in them, above them, and encompasses them. And the Rebbe begins, he's standing in shul, and he begins to roll on the ground. He's rolling on the ground, and he can't even say the word pachtecha. All he could say is pach, 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 pach. He can't finish the word pachtecha. Why? Because of the pachat, because of the awe. In other words, the awe was not just an intellectual idea, an intellectual concept, divorced from the bodily experience, divorced from body sensation. No. It was vividly felt in the, in the vibrations of the body, in the experience of the body, in the feelings that he felt in his body. He couldn't even finish the word, and he's rolling on the ground. And it took a while, he says, for the Alter Rebbe to be able to finish that one word, pachtacha. Now he tell, tells another story. We're on page 32. Second column, last paragraph. Nocha Maisa from the Rebbe Nem Tzemach Tzedek. Story number two comes from the Rebbe Tzemach Tzedek, who was, of course, the grandson of the Balatanya. For those who don't know, in Chabad dynasty, there were seven Rebbes. The first one, the founder of Chabad, is the Alter Rebbe, the elder Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, who was born 1745 and passed away 1812. He was succeeded by his son, Rabbi Nudayv Ber, the middle Rebbe, and he was succeeded by his son-in-law, who was a grandson of the Balatanya, both because he married the Mittler Rebbe's wife, the Mittler Rebbe's daughter, and because his mother was a daughter of the Alter Rebbe. So he was a grandchild two ways. His wife was a grand, granddaughter, and he was himself a grandson. And he's known as the Tzemach Tzedek, Rebbe Menachem Endel of Lubavitch, who was born, Erev Rosh Hashanah Tovkov Memtesi, was born 1789, and passed away in 1866, before Pesach, this is a story about the Tzemach It was the first years of his leadership, the first years of his Nesiyas means the first years when he was a Rebbe, because for many years he wasn't a Rebbe, he was a student of his grandfather, the Alter Rebbe, and then his father-in-law and uncle, his wife's father and his mother's brother, the Mittler Rebbe, Rebbe Doiv Ber, was the second Chabad Rebbe, but after he passed away, this is the year Tovkuf Peiches, the Mittler Abbasway Tovkuf Peiches, which would be 1827. And a year later, his son-in-law, the Tzemach Tzedek, took over. So in the first years, he was sitting and he was fabrenging with Chassid. Menad Gebracht Kavit. I don't know how many of you know what Kavit is. We have anybody from real Russian stock, Rabbi Avram, you hear? <laughs> They brought kavit. Kavit was, is a very, very strong vodka, a very, very strong mashka. They brought it. And he says in parentheses, das was heist heint neinziker. And the Rebbe is saying, today they call it 
Neinziker. Some of you have heard the expression Zexa Neinziker in Yiddish, which means 96. Neinziker means in the 90s. What does this mean? It means 90%, more than 90% of alcohol. I don't know if anybody ever tasted it. It's not a very good idea. But Zexa Neinziker in Russian, in Yiddish, means 96% alcohol. And 4% is not alcohol. You drink a cup of that, you're done for the day. Some say for the week. Kavit was one of these very, very strong vodkas. That's what they had. Basically, in the 90s, the percent of alcohol was of more than 90%. 90 or 95 or 96, whatever it was. Extremely, extremely intense. Hategenum and Englaz. Someone said it was Fabrengi. He took one glass, one cup. Then he took a second one. And then he told them to give him a third. Now, after drinking three such cups, one would expect that a person should be completely, completely out, as we say. After he finishes drinking, Tzamach Tzedek takes his hand, he puts it over his forehead. He runs it over his forehead. And nobody can recognize that he drank anything. It's like he drank water. Everybody was shocked. He contemplated, he meditated on the greatness and the infinity of Hashem. So he was overtaken with awe. When somebody drinks strong wine, he says, Fear takes away. It sobers you up. It eliminates the impact of the alcohol. So that sense of awe takes away from the body. It changes the sensation in the body that the influence, that the wine, the inebriating influence of the wine on the brain is altered, it's removed. The, in other words, if this would have been intellectual fear, this couldn't have happened. The awe, the sense of awe was so real, it was so vivid. It had such an impact and influence on him. It was so conspicuous and sensed, literally sensed, you know, when you, you feel it in the body, that it eliminated, compromised, neutralized, whatever the right word is, he says, the influence of, of the mashka, of the alcoholic inebriating beverage. I just want to tell you something. This is from the Tzamech Tzedek. I just want to tell you something that happened in Chastera. This is already in our generation few years before I was born, but I heard this from Rabbi Label Shapiro, the Rosh Hashiva of Miami. I heard this from him myself. He said that it was, and also other people who were there, but I heard it from him. It was Simchas Torah, Tavshin Chav Beis. Simchas Torah, 1961. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe had a fabrengen with Chassidim, like the Tzamech Tzedek. The Rebbe was named after the Tzamech Tzedek, Menachem Mendel. And it was a very, this was Simcha's Torah in the afternoon, and the Fabrengen went, I think he said, for around 10 or 12 hours, for a very long time. And the Rebbe was drinking a lot, a lot of mashka. Simcha's Torah, he was drinking and Fabrengen, he said, and it was incredible. The, the, his oeris, the, the, the inspiration, the, the singing, the dancing, the emotions. And many of the talks were dedicated to the Russian Jews who were still stuck behind the Iron Curtain. And there was a whole underground network of Chabad Hasidim and their students around the Soviet Union that was run clandestinely by the Rebbe through clandestine, through secretive shluchim and emissaries. And for that, one of these Jews came out from behind the Iron Curtain. His name was Berkechein, Rebdoiv Berkechein, who was in prison for years and years and years. His son left, his family, but he was stuck behind and he came out and he was there, that Simchas and for the Rebbe, that was a tremendous simcha because this was like a ud mutzel you know, 
a brand rescued from the flames of, of Stalinist, Stalinist communism, where close to 50 million people, including so many Jews and, and Hasidim, religious Jews, were tortured and murdered, and he came out. So it was a huge simcha. And the Rebbe dedicated many talks to Russian Jews. He said at one point, the Rebbe stood up, and usually he would, sit, he would speak while he was sitting, but at one point he stood up and he spoke standing, which was also unique. <laughs> and basically his message was <coughs> the important how, how learning chassidus every day gives oxygen to a person. So there were other times that the Rebbe drank a lot in those years. Purim, Simchas not not throughout the year, but Purim, Simchas And there's some tapes of Purim, and you can hear a different tone and a different way of talking, but always filled with, with Yiris Hashem, awe of God and Avas Hashem. But still it was different because of the mashka. So Rabbi Shapiro told me that uh, the Rebbe drank so much and everybody was startled to see. And then at some point he sat down, he literally took his hand, he put it over his forehead, and he said, and he started to give a sheer, a sicha, in the sugi of Chatzi Shir. He started to give, like a Rosh Hashiva, he started to give a presentation in a Talmudic discussion in Mesech Hesim about Chatzi Shir, which means what is the halacha if you eat something that's forbidden, but you don't eat the full shear, the full size and volume that the Torah prohibits you. Let's say a person eats a piece of pork, but not a kazayis, the volume of an olive, but let's say a half. Is it biblically forbidden? Is it not biblically forbidden? All these types of questions. What's behind the argument? Different ramifications. A whole shear that he gave in Chatzi shear said you would have never known that he drank any mashka for hours. So here we have the story that Samach Tzedek said. That the sense of Yiris Hashem, of awe of Hashem, was so vivid, it was so real, it was so powerfully felt in the body that it neutralized the impact of an inebriating drink. That is simply part of the body structure. It, it, it affects the bloodstream. <laughs> it affects the, the chemicals, the brain neurons. Just an abstract thought can't change that. This is story number two. Story number three. About Reb Nachum Who is Reb Nachum Reb Nachum of Chernobyl was a student of the Baal Shem Tov. His name was Reb Menachem Nachum Tversky. He lived in Chernobyl. Chernobyl is a town, a city in Ukraine. It became very well known in 1986 after the nuclear explosion in Chernobyl. Reb Nachum Chernobyl was a student of the Baal Shem Tov and the Maggid of Mizrich. He passed away. He was succeeded by his son, Reb Matala Chernobyl. Reb Mardechai of Chernobyl. He's known as the Chernobyl Maggid. And many of the Tversky families today and many of the other Hasidic dynasties Trace their lineage back to Reb Menachem Nachem of Chernobyl, the father of the Chernobyl Magid, the Heliker of Matla Chernobyl. You have the Tverskis and you have many of the various Hasidic dynasties, Babiv and others. Here's a story about the Holy Reb Nachem Chernobyl. Azoyich and Ava. The two stories we spoke about were about Yira, or Ubechaintain, Pach, 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 Decha, and the story of the Tzemach Tzedek. At the Fabrengen. Now is a story about love. Azevi Harav, Atzadik Rebbe Nachem Nachem Chernobyl, is given Fet Begufoy Fun Zogen Omen Yeshmei Rabba. Rebbe Nachem of Chernobyl was physically fat. What made him fat? He said, from saying Omen Yeshmei Rabba. <laughs> really? <laughs> I know how people become obese. I never heard of this. So the Rebbe says, As 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 the Rebbe Reb Nachum Chernobyl as Amin Yehishmei wasn't just a verbal declaration that was mindless. It wasn't even a verbal declaration that was mindful. It was a verbal declaration that changed the sensations and the dynamics in his physical body. The Amin Yehishmei when he thought about it, when he imagined it, when he appreciated, what does it mean Amin Yehishmei So the Reb explains that the great name should be blessed. La'olam in this world and all of the worlds. 
So he, he explains, he thought about what is Shmei Rabbah, what is the great name? What does this mean? I mean what great name? Where is their great name? He meditated what that means. He basically meditated on Gedulah Hashem, on the truth of the divine reality and its infinity. And Mevarach La'alam Al-Maya, it pervades all of the worlds, including the physical world of action, is all divine reality and presence. Now I could say these words, but he experienced it, and that's the key. And what do I mean experienced it? It was visceral, visceral. The love, the pleasure was so visceral, it was so real, that he actually became fat from it. That's what he says. It created a fatness, just like a person has fat. He says the pleasure of Amin Yehoshmei the love that he experienced, actually changed the dynamics in his body because, because it was a visceral experience. So it had a visceral impact on the dynamics of his physical body, of his physical organism. He becomes fat from saying Amin Yehoshmei Other people from Amin Yehoshmei if they would say Amin Yehoshmei all day, they would probably lose weight. Because they would eat less, but their this was his Aminyeshminab. What does all of this teach us? All of this is teaching us the relationship between the mitzvahs and the guf. It's not just the mitzvahs were given to human beings who are alive. That's true. But every mitzvah itself has a guf. Every mitzvah itself assumes a physical incarnation. And even the mitzvahs that seemingly don't, like loving God, he says, also assume a physical incarnation. Because the point is not intellectual, abstract, transcendent, spiritual, higher love in my mind. The point is that it becomes a real, a real reality that actually impacts the sensations in my body. It impacts those systems in my brain. And those systems in my organism, my actual, what they call the limbic brain, the amygdala, the nervous system. So the mitzvah itself has a very physical incarnation. The same is true, he says, with amuna, amuna in Hashem's oneness. It's duty of the brain. Or ava, or yira, whatever mitzvah it is, <clears throat> there's a physical incarnation. That's the ultimate function and theme of the mitzvah. And he wanted to give examples of how tzaddikim lived Yiddishkeit. So the Alter Rebbe, these are not words. He's rolling on the ground from his sense of awe. And the Tzemach Tzedek has such a Yiris Hashem, it can neutralize the Mashka. And Ibn Nachum Chernobyl says he becomes fat from the pleasure, from the love, from the fatty experience of saying Amin Yehoshmei and viscerally experiencing it. So we now go back to the Baal Shem Tev, you remember? You're looking at your donkey, and your donkey seems like he's your enemy, and he's crouching under your burden, under its burden. So you decide, I'm not gonna help my enemy's donkey. It's not part of my thing. I have better things to do. Is the Balsham to Vitamavidin After the Rebbe took a break in the Balsham parentheses. And he explained what the Balsham means that the body has a burden that was given to it, the burden of Torah and Mitzvahs. I don't like so much the word burden, but the point is the responsibility, the, the, the privilege of Torah Mitzvah, which can be perceived as just a hard and a heavy and undesirable burden. So the body is crouching, the donkey is lazy, or the donkey is abstinent, the donkey is stubborn, I'm not interested. The donkey is resisting, I'm not moving further, get rid of this burden. So I'm not going to help my enemy. So the Baal Shem Tev continues, Ken's to the Chmein, and you might think, You know what? I had enough with my body. I'm going to ignore my body. I can't deal with my body. My body is my enemy. I'm not dealing with my enemy anymore. I'm going to deal with avoida with service of God that belongs to the soul. So what do you do with the body? <laughs> what do you do with the body? You're alive. There was a path of people, and some of them were great people. And their primary path was breaking the body, which means ignoring the body or even really shutting it down. One path that people used to do is they used to fast a lot. Some people would even mortify their body. It's, it's, you know, it's hard for us to, in today's climate to imagine this. But this was a path and some great mystics, some great ethical people 
who felt that the right path in life is crush your body. Get rid of your body as much as possible. What do you mean get rid of your body as much as possible? It needs to survive. Let it survive. But tanesim, fasting, segufim, mortifications. It's based on an attitude. And the attitude is, this body is your enemy. He's not interested in carrying the burden. He is your foe. He is basically your enemy, opposing everything that is right and everything that is good. You want to live a good, noble, moral, ethical, spiritual, divine life. You want to prepare for the next world for Elam Abba, you tune into your soul. And you ignore your body. It's basically a form of detaching from the body. Now that means different things, so many different manifestations. One manifestation is, and this is a very a holy path, is people who would constantly fast and constantly mortify their bodies do a lot of things that different Kabbalists and different pious people did in order to silence and neutralize their body. It shouldn't have an opinion. Comes the Baal Shem Tev and says, Zuckman, the Torah says, Azov, Tazov, Imay, no. The wrong path. You mean well, you have good intentions, but it's the wrong path. Go and help the donkey. Help the donkey with its burden. Nurture the donkey. Cultivate the donkey. Show it what it's capable of. Work with it. Appreciate if the burden is too heavy and maybe has to be readjusted. Help the donkey come back, stand up and continue its journey with this burden. You don't ignore your body. You don't detach from your body. You certainly don't destroy and crush and break your body. You work with your guf. You listen to the body. You tune into the body. You have to be mevarer. Mevarer means clarify, crystallize, fine-tune, hone the skills of the guf. And the Baal Shem Tov says over there the line, The light of Torah will not dwell through ignoring your body's enemy, your, your, your enemy's, I said your body's enemy, through ignoring the donkey of your enemy, which means through ignoring your body. says, bring the goof along. And the Rebbe explains, a person can meditate on all the kavanas. A person can meditate on all of the meanings behind the mitzvah, but you won't physically do the mitzvah. For example, tefillin. What do I have to put on tefillin? Tefillin is a theme. So sit for half an hour. Imagine you can meditate for half an hour. Clear your mind of all distractions and all thoughts and tune into the concept of tefillin. Isn't that amazing? But tefillin I will not put on. So the Rebbe said, not only did you not do the mitzvah, on the contrary, you transgressed a sin because you did not do the mitzvah of tefillin. Not only did you not accomplish the positive you actually deprived yourself from the opportunity of doing a mitzvah. It's a bitl mitzvah zesa. To the contrary, speaking a little uh, interesting here. The early years, I speak a little off the cuff. He said, if a Jew puts on tefillin, but he didn't have the kavanas. He didn't meditate on what you have to meditate. Maybe he doesn't know them. So he just knows to put on tefillin. It may even be a Chabadnik stopped him in the airport and put on tefillin on him. Or maybe he knows, yeah, but he didn't do his mechavan. He said, If you knew the kavanas and you didn't, they're going to whip you. Meaning there's consequences. You had to do it. But the mitzvah you did. So you have an interesting paradox. Comes Pesach matzah. There's matzah in front of me. He says, I don't want to eat carbs. What do I have to eat matzah? I'll meditate on the meaning of freedom. I'll meditate on the meaning of, instead of eating murr, I'll meditate on the meaning of empathy. It's great, you should meditate on the meaning of freedom. But I didn't eat the physical matzah. So the Rebbe says, you didn't work with the guf. 
the physical matzah is the tasting the food that impacts the body in the most vivid way. So you see here that in all the mitzvahs, the focus ultimately is the impact within the body. If the, if the focus is the spiritual experience, think about the meaning of matzah. Think about the meaning of kiddush. Think about the meaning of tefillin. Think about the meaning of lulav. And think about the meaning of Hanukkah's victory. I have to light a candle. I have to eat matzah. I have to put on the tefillin. Physical, what I, I need, the strap should be on my skin, on my hide. The tefillin should be on my head. Just keep it spiritual, keep it meditative. And we know the power even of meditation also on the body. But here we want even the physical act. By Einem, and he tells a story. By Einem, for them, Tzemach Tzedek's Einiklach, at Kedav Zayn Abris. Tzemach Tzedek, who we mentioned earlier, had a grandchild, and there was a need for Abris. And as an end of the event, Svei Mo'yalem. There were two possible people who can give the Bris. Einem is given an Elterer, Vosot Givust, Kisvei Harizal, Tzi Alot Zenitala. There were two potential circumcisors. One was older. He was a senior member of the community. And he knew the writings of the Arizal. The Arizal is one of the greatest, one of the greatest Kabbalists in Jewish history. Arizal is Adeneinu Rabbeinu Yitzhak Zechreinu Levracha Rabbi Isaac Luria, who lived in the 16th century. Passed away 1572, Shinlamid Beis, at the age of 38 or 36, in Tzvas. And his writings represent the deepest secrets of Kabbalah. So the Arizal, the writings of the Arizal, this person mastered, the Rebbe said either he knew all of them, or he didn't know all of them, but certainly everything connected to a bris he knew. This means that when he would give the bris, when he would do the circumcision, it would come with the full intensive immerse, immersiveness and awareness of the profound spiritual significance of this amazing mitzvah to enter into the covenant of Abraham. There was another circumciser. He was younger. He was simpler. But he was an expert. He was an expert in circumcision. He was an expert in the skill and the techniques. So Mozedek said, take the younger one, not the older one. People were surprised. The older one also knew what he was doing. It wasn't like he wasn't a butcher, he was a maya. But he said, the younger one is a, is a expert. And so Mozedek said, the reason, he says in Yiddish, because you need the cut to be a physical cut. If all of Bris Miller was a spiritual experience... Yeah, here you have a senior chassid who's a great scholar, who even knows the Kabbalah of the Bris Miller and Kavaldik. If you're talking about a shear in bris millah, you should probably go to him. <laughs> but he said, but you need the physical cut. So I want somebody who's a greater expert, a greater expert in the skill and in te- 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 technique and in the medical biological component of bris millah. Again, why is he telling this story? He's telling this story because that's what the Baal Shem Tev is teaching us. That all of Torah and mitzvahs is about fusion and integration between the soul and the body. And here that becomes to the last paragraph, the punchline. Now we'll understand what Hashem means when He tells Avram Avinu. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. And the Zoyer says that Sarah is an allegory for the body, and we ask the question, don't we always learn that the soul needs to lead the body. The body needs to be subservient to the soul. And people in the comments were bringing from different sources, like Rabbeinu Bechaya, and you could bring many other sources, that somebody who gives prominence to the body over the soul is completely alienating themselves from the purpose of life. Purpose of life is that the body should surrender to the soul. What's the famous expression? Hagbara satsura ala the tsura, which means the spiritual energy needs to prevail over the chaymer, the material brute reality. The donkey shouldn't prevail. The donkey needs a boss. The donkey needs a master. The horse can't run the show. You need the horse. You need the donkey. But the donkey doesn't run the show. The chamar doesn't run the show. Suddenly we're saying, Hashem says something else. Whatever Sarah tells you, you listen to her. And what does Rashi tell us? 
because the Avais were subservient in prophecy to the Imais. The Imais, the Matrix, had better prophetic, deeper, more acute prophetic vision. Says the Rebbe, now we'll understand. Well, the Ikir Kavone is the Guf. Everything that we learned about the soul and the body is, of course, true. But the ultimate Kavana, these are incredible words. The ultimate Kavana, the ultimate objective, the ultimate purpose is the body, the guf. It's this does behelam. Now, this ultimate purpose is still concealed. When Mashiach comes, and then the world will be a transparent place, which means the truth of every reality will be revealed. This will come out in the most conspicuous way. It's brought in sources, in, in Kabbalistic and Hasidic sources, when Mashiach comes, the soul is going to get its nutrients from the body, from the guf. Fascinating. Today, the soul lives from what the soul lives from, and the body lives because of the food. <laughs> when Mashiach comes, it says, the true essence of the body is going to be revealed, that it's going to become the source of nourishment for the soul. By the Ovis is the Chiyaduaz, Itimana Kadesh Baruchu Bailam Hazemayin Elam Haba. The Gemara says in Baba Basra, Dafyud Zayin, the end of the first Perik, as he says in footnote 9, Baba Basra, Saif Perikama, that the Ovis, Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, Hashem, gave them a foretaste of the future world of Mashiach already in this world. They experienced the messianic, holistic reality already in this world. They were living in the consciousness of Gula. In the consciousness of Gula, the body emerges for what it really is the ultimate conduit for the divine truth. And therefore Hashem tells Avram, whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. As history gets closer to a Geula consciousness, we discover more and more that the body holds the divine score. That the body keeps the divine score. That the body has the cues for healing, for growth, for rejuvenation, for spiritual truth. That the body can help you learn who you are and what your purpose is and what your meaning is and what you have to work on and what you're dealing with. Listen to the cues of your body. Listen to the guf. Yes, there is a stage in life where the neshama and guf could be enemies, as he says, in the beginning of life, in the beginning of avayd, in the beginning of history. But later the Baal Shem Tov teaches you, don't see your donkey as your enemy. You have to see your donkey as your greatest ally. And when Mashiach comes, not only will it be your ally, it's going to be your teacher. Your body becomes your teacher. Sarah is the teacher of Avram Avinu. The body holds the ultimate truth, the ultimate emes. It's concealed. And therefore you need the neshama, the consciousness, to explore it, to excavate it, to teach it, to navigate it. But ultimately the purpose is not to crush the body, not to break the body, not to detach from the body, to tune in to what is all there in the goof, in the body. And this goes back to what we learned in Tanya chapter 49, that the choice, when we say, Hashem chose us, it's referring not to the soul, it's referring to the guf, to the body. And it refers back to what we learned in the summer, Lekutei Sichas, volume 23, the Sich of Matas Masay, Menachem of, we comfort the Father, all on this theme. Over there we went a step deeper yet. Sarah and Avram Avinu lived Gula consciousness. That's what the Gemara says. That they already had a taste of Olam Haba in this world. So therefore Hashem tells Avram, in your case, whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. Because as the world becomes a more refined place, a more Geula place, as we go out of the exile mentality, and we embrace Geula consciousness, more and more he says, whatever Sarah tells you, you listen to it. Because the body keeps the score. Questions. Question number one. What about somebody who just eats a lot and then they blame it on Amin Yehei Okay, listen, we're talking here about very honest people. Reb Nachum Chernobyler <laughs> wasn't shy of even exaggerating, never mind of deception, Chas You're talking about people who were refined, people who understood that 
you know, covering up truth doesn't get you anywhere. You don't even fool yourself and you don't fool others either in the famous expression. So yeah, listen, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm eating everything and I become obese and I blame it on Amin Yishmer Abba, so I'm just deny, I'm in denial. They say denial is not only a river in Egypt. This is beautiful. Wow, beautiful. Materialization of the divine. That's how we bring Hashem into this world. This is our friend from Pakistan. Abraham is the neshama. Sarah is the material manifestation of that divine neshama. So Sarah is the one who helps us find godliness in the body and in the world, and Avram could learn from that. Absolutely. Now I understand why the neshama gets materialized in the womb of a woman. Because every woman represents the guf, and that's what the neshama needs most. This is truly profound. Yes, thank you, Mahajabin Balach, for being here and for your insights. Okay, we'll take another few questions. Next question. <clears throat> this really does change one's attitude to the body. Why did I always think that Judaism seems looks at the goof as, as something negative, and at best, just as a subservient slave to the soul. Right. So, it's important to say, you're going to find many sources that discuss the subservience of the body, and sometimes they'll even be derogatory terms of the body. The Rebbe himself said that till Mashiach comes, the power of the body could still be concealed. And that's an important idea. Which means... There were cultures that became obsessed with the body at the expense of ethics, at the expense of decency. I don't have to mention names, but not very long ago, there was an entire nation that worshipped the body, your looks, the color of your eyes, the color of your hair, your physique, at the expense of everything, at the expense of everything else. That's where the body becomes a deity that has to be scorned. It's where the body trumps everything else. And that's why in Judaism, this is such a sensitive idea. That the neshama rules. The neshama is the inner consciousness, the moral compass of a person, our divine connection. But in the ultimate equation, it's not to crush the body. It's because the body itself really has the ultimate divine secrets, the ultimate divine energy, the ultimate truth of yourself and your purpose. It's concealed. And sometimes the body can be misconstrued and can be used like every great thing. can be used against itself. You understand? So there's two stages. That's why he says, in the beginning it could be your enemy. But later it's your best friend. How am I supposed to apply this to my daily life? The first thing you apply to your daily life is, I think, this, this important idea of, of today we're learning the value of of integrating everything into your body. I mean, I'm also learning about it. It's fascinating stuff. I didn't grow up with this idea so much, even though I used to hear it from the Rebbe a lot. <laughs> but nobody really translated it to always into practical terms. Really, you really need a teacher for this or a mentor for this or, or, or the right people to guide you how, how ultimately when we experience everything in life in the body, we, we live a much more integrated life. And not only that, the body allows us to transcend a lot of our anxieties and a lot of our stresses and a lot of our traumas to be able to really live a balanced, focused, divine life. So this is, this is very heavy stuff. Current research is discovering that the body itself is capable of storing memory as opposed to the brain alone. Did the Rebbe say that that memory is the key to redemption? Beautiful, beautiful comment. Thank you, thank you. Beautiful comment. Excellent comment. This is, uh, this is so, so true what you're saying. That part, part of going from a place of exile to a place of redemption is to listen to the body. Listen, literally, it's what he's saying. Everything Sarah tells you, listen to her. Sarah is not, your ba- Sarah is not a bad girl. Sarah, ain't your, Sarah is not your enemy. Don't ignore Sarah. When Sarah says something, listen. Sarah is alerting you to reality. Sarah has everything stored in her. Sarah has the memory of everything. 
right? Today, uh, the somatic therapists uh, say, one of the leaders, I heard her talking, and she said that, that we used to think you have to know the cause of the trauma in order to heal it. So today, we're discovering they don't even have to know the cause. The body knows it already. You just need to let the body, you have to give permission to the body to do its work and release it and liberate you. This means you have to trust the body. So more and more we're coming to discover the deep spirituality and holiness in the body. We're not talking here about worshipping physique at the expense of substance, of character. This is not about denigrating, you asked about people who are crippled. This is not about worshipping, you know, the Greek and Aryan German worshipping of the perfect body and, and somebody who's challenged mentally, physically, is of course second tier. I don't have to tell you how alien that idea is to Judaism who sees in every body and in every body both the image of God. But this is about the deep godliness that exists in the body. It's fascinating how it takes 40 years to understand the teacher. Doesn't it say that in the Talmud? Yes. The Talmud says in Tractate Avodah page 5, that till 40 years... A student never does not understand what the teacher really meant. The truth is that I have to say that I'm finding this now constantly. In the last, I would say, the last year, two years, three years, last years, I am going back to uh, dozens and dozens, hundreds of talks that I myself had the privilege of hearing from the Lubavitcher Rebbe when I was young. And I heard them. I remembered them. I was also part of the team that transcribed them. But today, 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later, and also talks that were given before my days, I'm a baby, as you can see. My fat doesn't come from Aminya Heshmerabah, just for the record. I'm not going to tell you what it comes from, but it doesn't come from Aminya Heshmerabah. But I'm going back to them, and just in my own, from my own humble and limited understanding, I see layers of... Uh, of depth that I never imagined at the time. Especially when you see what's going on in the world, you see how contemporary and literally cutting edge a lot of this information is. For example, this sikha that was said in 1950. And in 1950, I don't have to tell you that this wisdom about the body was extremely limited. There were maybe a few papers. It's literally only in the last few decades that this type of literature exploded in the in the, in the scientific community. Okay, another interesting question somebody asks. This is from Rabbi Aaron, our ambassador in training. I saw a great line written by Gili Lax, the guy who puts on tefillin on people at the Kaistel. He has a famous, quite a story. And he says, Ah, Malchus Shamayim, Ah, Mitzvah Santayra. We all know the word. Many have the connotation of a heavy burden. It's a weight. It's negative. But the literal taich of oil is yoke. What is a yoke? A wooden contraption that's put over the ox to plow the field. If you want to plow your field, what are you going to do? You have the ox kick the dirt with their feet. So Hashem gave man the gift of the idea of a yoke. The yoke harnesses utilizes and focuses the tremendous shoulder strength and leg muscles of the ox to enable the ox to plow the field. The oxes and their owners love it. It makes their job easier. The yoke doesn't torture the ox. It makes his job easier, more efficient, better in every way. That's the fact. It puts together two oxen and then doubles the power of their strength. This is like achtos. So the yoke of Torah is not a burden, it's not there to crush you. It's a gift, an incredible tool to help us through life. Life is difficult. Life is complicated. And we're busy plowing earth that's filled with dirt and gravel to make life easier, more effective and better and more joyous. It harnesses our tremendous power in our shoulders and our legs in order to be able to bring light into our lives. That's beautiful. Thank you. The way I understand it is that there were religions and philosophies that prioritized the body. They were very hedonistic. The spiritual was ignored. It's all about bodily pleasures. There are also religions that prioritize the spiritual, and the body is ignored as much as possible. Like you said, fasting mortifications. Here we see the perfect fusion and balance. 
We have a body, you never ignore it, you don't mortify it. And even fasting, the Baal Shem Tov said, is not our ultimate objective. You have to fuse everything, and not only that, ultimately, it's the body that's greater than the soul. Sarah is greater than Avram Avinu. I don't understand. I heard that the Rebbe used to fast on a regular basis. How does that work with this Sicha? I know the Rebbe fasted Bahab, always after Yom Tif. They said that for decades he would fast sometimes a whole week, even when he was in Berlin and Paris. I remember when I was growing up, the Rebbe, whenever he went to the oil of his father-in-law, he fasted, and sometimes he would go days on end and fast. And they said that he was always fasting. How do you reconcile it with this? It's a good question. It's a good question. There is a letter from the Rebbe's father to the Rebbe in the 1930s where he chastises him for fasting so much. He says, you shouldn't do it. It's not the way to do it. The truth is that the Rebbe used to speak a lot that in our generation, it's not a good idea to fast. You have to eat in a healthy way, in a way that builds your body and helps you serve Hashem. And if you need a fast, give tzedakah instead. But the Rebbe himself would fast a lot. That is true. And it could be, maybe, that in order to make sure that a generation, this is just my own theory, it could be that in order to make sure that a generation doesn't lose the message, there has to be that one person who fasts a lot. Meaning, it's easy to use this as a tool for self-indulgence that's not good for the body. You know, the body suddenly becomes holy, so every instinct I have to uh, fulfill. And really, I need discipline. I need to learn what my body really wants. And that's the, the key. You have to listen to Sarah. Don't tell Sarah what to say. Sometimes if I'm anxious or I'm stressed or have a void, I'm dealing with addictions, I'm dealing with other stuff in my life, the body develops instincts simply to help soothe those voids. So this, this is where the body needs direction, where the body needs mentorship where the body needs to understand what's really going on, where you allow the body to really, really call the shots by tuning into its authentic energy. But there can be pitfalls. So maybe the Rebbe felt that he still had to fast a lot in order to steer to steer a generation uh, in the right path, not to become indulgent. But I, 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 don't know the, I don't know the ultimate answer for that. I'm not, I'm not sure. But perhaps, you know, a Rebbe feels that they used to, <coughs> Rabbi El Khan, I once said for Rabbi El Khan that somebody asked the Rebbe why he doesn't go on vacation. Other Rebbes went on vacation. So he said, when the other Rebbes went on vacation, the Hasidim were working so the Rebbe can go on vacation. He says, <coughs> but when the Hasidim are on vacation, the Rebbe has to work. <laughs> okay, my dearest friends. Sending you my love and blessings to all. Take care of your bodies and listen to them. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.